Father, we thank you so much that one day a week we get a chance to gather together, though we are in your counsel every day. And we get one day a year, Father, to remember the moment in which you prove the truth of your promises by raising your son from the dead, though we glory in that truth every day. And so today, Father, though it is special on the calendar, it is but one more day in a lifetime spent with you because of the work Jesus did on the cross. Thank you, Father, for this chance to remember it once again. And Father, we'll go into your word again this morning. And this morning I ask that our attentiveness would be directed not only to the meaning and to the truth of what's written, but also, Father, to its purpose in our individual lives. Let it be something, Father, that you use to teach us individually in some greater way. And Father, I pray that as I speak, I speak your will and your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Easter it is. Easter is that Sunday after the Jewish Passover. That's why it's moving around on the calendar, by the way, every year. It's, it's connected to the week of the Jewish Passover, always the Sunday after Passover. It is the day in which we remember that a man who had been put to death came back from the grave three days later. That's the essential meaning of the day. That man, as you know, was Jesus of Nazareth. And in his life before that death, he declared himself to be the only Son of the only God. And he said, even before he died, that his death would be a payment for our sin and that our willingness to accept that payment was all that was required for us to spend an eternity with God. That was the the outlandish, ridiculous promise that this man made while he was still alive. He also said that the proof that his claims were true would come in the form of a resurrection, that after three days in the grave, he would return, that he would come back from the dead that he would be resurrected and that that resurrection, that first time event that's never been repeated, that a man who was previously dead would come back to life would be the proof that he could offer to show you that his claims were trustworthy. Now, that actually happened. There were many witnesses to it happening and they recorded what they saw. Along with the supernatural signs and miracles God did in that day, all of which verified his claims. Now, for 2,000 years... People who have believed that testimony have set aside one Sunday every year to remember that event. We call it Easter. In fact, the word Easter comes from the word east in English, as in the sun rising in the east. For example, the German language uses Oster as their word for Easter, and it also means east. There are other traditions that use a different word. In Spanish, it's Pascua, which is from the Hebrew word for the Passover. Now, 1,400 years before... Christ was born, an event took place in the deserts of the Middle East, which also proved the truth of what Jesus claimed concerning himself. It's a story you may never have studied, and I'm almost certain we never studied it on Easter. Leave it to me to find something obscure for Easter. So turn with me to the book of Numbers, found in the Old Testament, four books from the left. During the years after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. They endured a difficult period of time in the desert. They rebelled against the Lord in the very first month after they left Egypt, in the first month of the Exodus. And after testing God one too many times, he declared that the adult generation that had just left Egypt would not enter into the promised land. And for that reason, he condemned them to wander in the desert until the last adult had died, which was 40 years in the desert. Only their children would be left alive long enough to enter into the promised land. 
It took them 40 years of wandering for that judgment to be complete. The book of Numbers is the book that records those 40 years of wandering. So if you've wondered how it fits into the five books of Moses, that's its purpose. It records what happened during those 40 years of wandering. And in that book, there is an interesting account of one day during those 40 years. At the very end, actually in the 40th year of their wandering. And on this day, the Israelites are back in their usual ways of grumbling, rebelling against the Lord. They sin continually during these 40 years, rejecting God and rejecting the leader that God appointed over them, Moses, in other words. And God decides on this day to bring a judgment against the people to teach them and us an important lesson, one that has an important tie into Easter. The story is found in Numbers 21, so turn with me to that chapter. And let me introduce where we are in this chapter, why we jump into the middle of this story. At this point in the book of Numbers, in the story of their wandering, Israel's already been in the desert for 40 years. This is the very end of their 40 years of wandering. Aaron, the brother of Moses, is dead, as is Moses' wife. Moses himself is nearing the end of his life. And now the people of God, Israel, are moving northward. If you have a map in your Bible or if you know the region I'm talking about, you should be able to picture this. They're moving through a sandy valley that connects the Dead Sea in the north to the Red Sea, the Gulf of Aqba, in the south. And there's a narrow valley on either side surrounded by high canyon walls that connects these two. It's a relatively fertile plain, but yet it's still wilderness. It's still desert. And they're on the last leg of their wandering. They're going to travel north through this space and then head east of the Jordan and eventually arrive near Jericho and then come across the Jordan under Joshua's leadership in just a short time. But for now, they have to make this trek northward a distance of about 165 miles through the desert. Now, the route is filled with drifts of granite. It's sandy. Have you ever walked on a sandy beach? Is that easy or hard? Imagine doing that for 165 miles. It has terrible sandstorms that will pick up out of nowhere and blow over you in that time. It's the kind of miserable trek likely to make just about anyone grumpy. And the Israelites made a profession out of being grumpy in the desert. So it triggers in them the old weaknesses that we've seen if you've studied their time in the desert. This is common. So let's jump in at that point in chapter 21, verse 4. And let's see what happened on that day. They set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against Moses, against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. All right, well, let's stop there. There's plenty already. Here we see the classic Israelite response to hardship during their wanderings. And I keep saying that because if you have an opportunity, perhaps in studying some of the other chapters of this book, you'll see what I mean. Even going back into the book of Exodus and their original Exodus out of Egypt, they repeat this phrase often. Their impatience here because of the journey leads them to speak against, we're told, both God and Moses. To speak against in this context, it implies not merely grumbling, but a rejection of the leadership of God and Moses to imply that Moses' leadership is responsible now for bringing them to their end, to their death. It's a, a rebellion. In particular, they say, Moses brought them out of Egypt without food and without water, only to leave them to die in the desert. Now think about that statement for just a minute and see how ridiculous it is. First, they've been wandering for 40 years. 
This isn't the first time they set foot into the desert. For 40 years, they have had God providing food and water. Now, when they said these same words at the very onset of this wandering period, back when they left Egypt, maybe you could give them a little benefit of the doubt. But after 40 years? And it's one thing to complain about dying in the first few weeks, but now they've seen God take care of their daily needs with respect to food and water for 40 years. And here again, their journey makes them impatient. It's difficult. And they run to the same conclusion. You can't trust God. You can't trust Moses. They only want to see us die. Secondly, look at what they say in verse 5. They reveal their own hypocrisy. They say, there is no food and water. But then they say, oh, and we loathe this miserable food. Well, it's one or the other. Either you have no food or you hate your food, but you can't hate the food you don't have. So there's something wrong already in what they say. They're referring, of course, to the manna. Now, here again, if you haven't studied their time in the desert, this may be a bit new to you. But manna was a special food. We don't exactly know what it was. It's described earlier in the book of Exodus. But in a sense, it's a supernatural provision. Every morning, the people of Israel would wake up and find on the ground, literally, a special kind of nutrient food that was perfectly suited to their needs and it was provided by God it would only last about a day so if you tried to hoard it it would be no good the next day it forced them to think about God's provision on a daily basis and to look to that provision now to give them some credit I'm sure eating the same thing every day got a little old but it was better than nothing and it was enough to sustain their life and it was as a consequence of the judgment God brought against them for their own sin to begin with Sort of like a prisoner who's in jail complaining that he doesn't have better food. Should have thought about that before you committed the crime. Follow me? But they certainly can't accuse God or Moses of failing to care for them after 40 years in the desert. Obviously, their complaining is nothing but an exaggeration. And just a chapter earlier, if you jump back one chapter in this story, God had Moses call water forth from a rock in order to accommodate their needs for water. Clearly, it's an exaggeration to say we have no food and no water. I find it humorous to read stories about Israel because it's often such a great reflection on people today, myself included. It's like reading a, a book by looking in the mirror, isn't it? I mean, we do exactly the same thing. When we feel unhappy about our circumstances, we'll turn every blessing into a reason to complain. I can remember sitting in the back of my parents' car during long road trips and you you don't hear these as often today i guess i don't know why but i remember when i was growing up you drove everywhere and it was always a long road trip and you didn't have minivans with tvs right <laughs> we had the caprice classic without air conditioning you know the, the long bench seat in the back you shared with your brother and he was touching you and he was on your side and you remember the whole story right and i'm complaining the whole time as we drive in this trip about the fact that i have to sit in the back and about my brother and about the heat and about whatever came to mind forgetting that I'm on a trip to Disneyland. <laughs> Forgetting that the whole point is to get to something good, and I'm only focused on the fact that it requires that I sit in the car for a few hours. Uh, that's typical. That's typical for anyone. Our complaining will often be exaggerated, too. Not just that we would take a blessing and turn it against God or turn it against whoever gave it to us, but that we would exaggerate about the extent of that harm. The technique of a teenager, my favorite example of this. No teenagers are in mind at this point particularly, but just teenagers... If they don't get something they need, what is it that's going to happen to them? They're going to die. I'm going to die from hunger. I'm going to die from boredom. I'm going to die from embarrassment. They're going to die. It's a miracle any teenager survives to adulthood because 
they're apparently at risk of death at any moment at all times. In this case, however, the exaggeration and the insults are no laughing matter for God, because as Israel turns yet again for the umpteenth time and says, God is against us, Moses is against us, and we're going to die, God decides that at this point he needs to teach them a lesson, a very hard lesson, for the fact that they continue in this state of rebellion. By rejecting God and rejecting Moses, God's appointed leader, Israel was truly now in jeopardy of their lives. Look what comes next in verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Now, parents, when, when you hear your children complaining about nothing, you may be tempted to use the time-tested words, well, I'm going to give you something to complain about. <laughs> I wonder if something similar went through the Lord's mind right at about this point. But in any case, he, he decides he's going to show them truly what rebellion requires or what it leads to. He sends, we're told, fiery serpents into the camp. Now, we don't know what these things were for sure. The Hebrew word is not very helpful in this case. It literally means what the text in English says, fiery, flaming serpents. They may have been just pure supernatural creatures, something like what we see happening during the time of Revelation when God does things on earth that are completely uh, supernatural and without any natural point of reference. But I don't think that's what was involved here. I don't think we have to run to that answer. I think it could have easily been a plague of real snakes, in which case the term fiery there would probably either refer to their color. Desert snakes are often reddish in color. Or, and I think this is actually the better answer, or it had something to do with the nature of the bite, the way it felt to be bitten by one of these snakes. The poet Lucan, one of the ancient poets, wrote in a poem describing the bite of a desert snake, which the ancients would call a prester or a dipsus. We don't know which one of the desert snakes they're using that term for exactly. But Lucan wrote of what it was like to be bitten by one of these snakes. Listen to what he says and see if this doesn't sound something like what Moses is talking about. He describes a youth by the name of Aulus. Aulus, a noble youth of Tyrene blood, who bore the standard on a dipsus trod. Backward, the wrathful serpent bent her head and fell with rage, the unheeded wrong repaid. Scarce did some little mark of hurt remain and scarce he found some little sense of pain. Nor could he yet the danger doubt, nor fear that death with all its terrors threatened there. When, lo, unseen, the secret venom spreads, and every nobler part at once invades. Swift flames consume the marrow and the brain, and the scorched entrails rage with burning pain. Upon his heart the thirsty poisons prey, and drain the sacred juice of life away. No kindly floods of moisture bathe his tongue, but cleaving to the parched roof it hung. No trickling drops distill, no dewy sweat to ease his weary limbs and cool the raging heat. With swift expansion swells the bloated skin. Naught but an undistinguished mass is seen while the fair human form lies lost within. The puffy poison spreads and leaves around till all the man is in the monster drowned. Well, there's a nice, pleasant thought to have on Easter morning, isn't it? 
in some respects, that depicts a common view of what snake bites can do to people. But you notice it has a unique quality to it, this, this idea of painful burning as a part of the process in which the poison moves through the body. This, I would argue, is likely what we're hearing Moses describe as the fate of those in Israel when they're bitten by these serpents. Now, it's important to notice two things about this story at this point. First, notice that everyone in the camp of Israel is being bitten. Now, it doesn't say everyone, but by the context and by the implications of what comes later in this story, it becomes clear that that's the problem. The snakes are finding their way to everyone. And like the poet described, there isn't an immediate effect, but there comes an effect over time in which they begin to die from this bite. So though not everyone is bitten in the same moment, the plague is moving and reaching the entire camp. There will be no escape, in other words, for anyone unless something is done. Secondly, notice the deadly effects of the bite take time, as I just said, to take hold. It's apparent here, and you'll see it again later, but in verse 7, the plague is ongoing even as they ask for intercession. It's still happening. And they were seeking relief lest everyone die. At least we see that the people here have already expressed some measure of repentance. That's good news. They're already saying, I think we understand. We did something wrong. God did this. We can put two and two together. We repent. And they acknowledge to Moses, this is because they said, look, they spoke against God and Moses. You notice that in the text. So they put two and two together and they ask Moses to intercede. Do something with God to stop this plague. This plague is unlike anything God has done before. Never before has God ever gone to this extent with the nation of Israel. In the past, he has brought punishment on the entire camp against the entire camp of Israel, everyone suffering. He's done that. But it was never a fatal judgment. And then in other cases, he brought fatal judgments, but never against the whole camp. For the first time, he's bringing a fatal judgment against everyone in the camp of Israel. Obviously, therefore, God is going to have to do something to interrupt this judgment or else this will be the end of Israel in the desert. He set up a judgment with that possibility unless something is done. Now, in response to the people's show of repentance to Moses, the Lord does offer a way out of this death sentence. Look at the next two verses. Verse eight. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. So in response to the people's cry for help, this is what they get. Moses has to create a fake snake and put it on a standard. And what a standard means is a pole, like a flagpole. And stick it up on top of this flagpole and walk around with it and have people look at it. All right. It's weird. He says that he made this thing out of bronze. The word for bronze in Hebrew is actually the same as the word for copper. We don't know which one it was. It could very easily have been copper because copper, as you know, when it's new, has an appearance that you could describe as fiery, particularly if the sun is hitting it. Right. So it's likely that he tried to make it look as much as he could like the real snake and copper being an easy metal to work with. It makes some sense that he might use that. And he sets it up as a substitute. So you have this substitute snake I and mean, it's not the real snake, right? It's a substitute snake. And it's sitting on the top of the pole and he's walking around the camp with it. And as he moves around through this camp, 
People apparently are still being bitten. That's apparent by how the text describes the event. So people are still getting bitten. The plague is ongoing. But here's Moses walking around with the snake on top of the stick. Snake on a stick. Seems like something you'd find at a fair. Now, this is a curious solution. I mean, there's no getting around it. It almost seems too easy, doesn't it? For all the stuff they've done, for all that they've said, to bring them to this point where God had to create this fiery serpent plague and so on, He's going to let it end. He's going to get them off the hook with nothing more than stare at this snake. That doesn't seem hard enough. In fact, it even causes us to ask the question, why even bother? Why bother with this solution? If it's going to be that easy, just stop it altogether. What does looking at the serpent accomplish? Well, let's consider first, what must have transpired as Moses walked through the camp of Israel with this snake? Let's imagine that scene just a little bit, because it's not written in the text specifically, but it's pretty easy, I think, to make some assumptions about what happened. First, remember that there are hundreds of thousands and more than likely millions, or at least over a million, Israelites in the desert at this point. So if you have that many people, you don't just hold it up once. You've got to move. You've got to take some time. It's a process. So we know he's going to be moving around and through the camp. Now, as he moves, imagine the scene. Here's Moses. Guy's pretty old by now, 120. He's holding this stick, probably hunched over, probably got the, the snake at the top, heavy, and he's not moving real fast. That's my assumption. And as he's moving around, what is he doing? Well, he has to tell him something. He's the messenger in this. He's got the snake for a reason. So as he moves, you can imagine him declaring out loud that God has made this provision available. This is his grace to the people of Israel. If you want to live, look at the snake. That's all he's saying. Something like that. Now, what do you think is in the minds of the people as they hear this? As they're suffering with burning pains and snakes running rampant in the camp of Israel. Perhaps there were some who were just desperate enough to do anything, and as soon as Moses gave the offer, they said, fine, let me look, whatever it takes. But do you think that everyone was doing that? We can assume that some didn't, because verse 6 has already told us many are dying. And verses 8 and 9 leave open the possibility that some are not taking this advice. Now, if that's true, if I'm making a good assumption there, can we explain that? What would have stopped someone from doing what Moses said had to be done if they wanted to live? The instructions are simple enough. It doesn't cost anything. Just look. The person only had to do two things, as far as I can reckon out of the text. They had to repent, which is really just an acknowledgement that they're the ones at fault, that they're the ones who need to do something about their problem, that they're the ones who started the mess. And then secondly, they had to take advantage of an opportunity that God made available And that opportunity was made available by following Moses' instructions, listening to Moses, following his instructions. But if either of those steps are missing, this bite is going to eventually take their life. Now, why wouldn't they sign up for that deal? And why does God come up with such an odd judgment followed by such an odd relief? Well, Jesus gave us the answer in the Gospel of John. Go to the Gospel of John now, chapter 3. And we're going to start in chapter 3, verse 14. Look at chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is Jesus speaking. He says in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Now, Jesus is talking to a man called Nicodemus when you open in chapter 3. 
And a moment earlier in this chapter, Jesus is trying to explain to Nicodemus that a man must be born again. Those are Jesus's words. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus gets flustered at this point because he says, how can a man crawl back into his mother's womb? That didn't make any sense to him. Jesus then says that the term born again isn't a reference to being physically born again. The term was about spiritual birth, about receiving a new spirit to replace the old, decrepit, sinful one that every man and woman is born with. This nature that we have to rebel against God, to give no attention to God, to give no concern to the things of God. Now, most of us in here on Sundays are studying Genesis with me. We remember from our study in Genesis that the dead spirit Jesus is referring to here is the spirit we inherited from Adam that's passed down through every man and woman from that day onward. This dead spirit that we come into life with, it's a death sentence. It's an eternal death sentence. Though we are all alive in this room today, it's really a temporary kind of existence. Our heart is beating for now, but one day it stops. You can say we are living right now under a death sentence. The death rate, last time I checked, among humans is 100%. We all die. In verse 14, Jesus was comparing Nicodemus and therefore all of us to the Israelites. By referencing Moses and this story we just covered, Jesus was making a comparison. He was saying, Nicodemus, you're like the Israelites. And I can say the same about us today. We're like the Israelites in the desert. We've been bitten. We've been bitten by the judgment God sent upon the earth as a result of Adam's sin. We live under a death sentence. God has said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, speaking to Adam. And as a result of what he did, that death sentence attached and has continued to exist for everyone who came from Adam. So in a sense, we're just like the Israelites. We've been bitten. We're dying. I've often heard it said that that being healthy is just the slowest way to die. So we're dying. We're just getting there very slowly. In our mind, it feels slow, right? We feel like we got forever, especially if you're a teenager. You don't think you're ever going to die. And in this state of jeopardy, of knowing we're going to die, how are we to respond? Paul says in Romans 5:12, he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, in the desert, going back to our story for a moment, the sin of the Israelites was what? It was speaking out against God and against Moses. And we said when we looked at that a moment ago that speaking out against meant they were unwilling to be led by God and Moses. They were unwilling to submit to their authority, to trust them in the judgments that were being made concerning where they go and so on. Today, folks, those of us who have been born into this life, all of us included, before faith, We engage in the same kind of rebellion. We don't think of it the same way, but we are unwilling to be ruled by God and actually by Moses. By Moses, I'm referring, of course, to the law of God, who Moses is really a picture of. He's an embodiment of it. When the Jews want to talk about the law of God, they'll often just say Moses or the law of Moses. It's almost one and the same. Just as the Israelites rebelled against Moses' leadership, Mankind has rebelled against God and his law just by our nature, just by the way we're brought into this world. That law is the definition of holiness. And it is also, according to Scripture, the requirement for entry into God's presence. The standard God has set for anything that must enter into his presence in eternity is 
perfection. Not 90%. He doesn't grade on the curve. It is 100%. One sin is the disqualification that leaves us outside of an opportunity to enter into God's throne. It's it's all or none. The Bible says in James chapter 1 that if we violate even one law, we have broken them all. One is equivalent to all. So now back to John chapter 3 for a moment. You have Nicodemus. He's listening to Jesus. He's like that Israelite that's been bitten. He's dying, but he's still alive for the moment. And in this moment, there's an opportunity. If he recognized that he was in jeopardy, if he repented of this rebellion that he lived in against God and against God's law, then there could be reason for hope. Now, Moses wasn't merely the reason why the Israelites were being judged. God also used Moses, you notice, to deliver a salvation to them as well. After all, Moses was the one who who made the serpent and called their attention to it as he walked through the camp. And here's the hope that Jesus said lay for this man. Now, he's not in the desert, right? This is 1,400 years later. He doesn't have Moses walking around with with a bronze snake. So what's his opportunity? Well, Jesus referred to himself. He called himself the Son of Man. Jesus said that he was pictured by that substitute bronze serpent when it was stood up on top of that pole. Jesus was to be our substitute on a wooden cross instead of on a flagpole. And if someone would look up to Jesus on that cross in faith, he could be saved from his sentence of death, the death that comes from sin. That was the comparison Christ made. Moses is not just our condemner, the law, in other words, condemning us for our sin. Moses is also pointing us to the solution, is he not? Numbers is one of the books of Moses. In Numbers right now, we're seeing a clear picture of who we need to look to for our salvation, Christ. It's almost as if Moses is standing here right now, by virtue of the book of Numbers, and is holding up that same solution for us right now. That is, he's pointing us to Christ. Like Paul says, the law is a tutor to drive us to Christ. But the outcome is a question of faith. Look at the next three verses in John 3 as we wrap up for the morning. John 3.16 Some of you may know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Now, John 3.16 easily is the best known verse In the Bible. But because it's so well known, I think we may have stopped listening to some of what it says. It says the motive for God's grace was his love for the world. And specifically, God loved the creation, the world itself. And he knew it stood to perish from the judgment of sin. And he loved it so much, he was not willing to see it perish. Remember in the camp of Israel? Had God not acted? Not a single Israelite would have been remaining at the end of that judgment. But God so loved Israel and he so loved the world today that he is not content to allow that outcome to go unchecked. But instead offers an alternative. Rather than see that end, God makes a way possible. And in our day, he has sent his only son to earth. And in his earthly existence, he lived a life without sin so that he had no debt of his own. And therefore, his death on the cross could be a payment for our debt, the debt of sin. And now... Jesus says those who would accept this opportunity will see their death sentence commuted to eternal life. Now, we might ask the exact same question here 
that I asked a moment ago concerning the Israelites in the desert. Why wouldn't someone accept this offer? You know, in the day of Israel, they had been bitten. They felt the pain in the moment. They understood the jeopardy. They were watching people around them dying. And as Moses walks through the camp with a snake on a stick, they look up at it and they say, well, this is what God's provided. But if they don't look up in faith, do you think it had any effect? It's not magic. It's not superstition. God's asking for a faithful response, a response that acknowledges in the moment, if this is the way you've provided, then I trust it. Now today, it's almost exactly the same parallel, isn't it? It's Christ on a cross, not a snake on a stick. One was picturing the other. But it's just as easy. And yet, for some, it's just as hard. Here's why I think it's so hard for some. They get stuck at step one. Step one is the repentance step, remember? Step one is the step in which you look around and you recognize, I have a death sentence. I am in jeopardy. There is such thing as a snake bite, so to speak. And if I don't act, it will kill me. And of course, we're not talking here about the physical death. That comes regardless. We're talking about the spiritual death that Christ said follows for any who didn't believe. Look what he said in verse 18. He says, the one who doesn't believe is already judged. Is already judged. What's he referring to there? Well, think back to the Israelites in the desert and you know immediately what he's referring to. The Israelites who refused to look at the serpent in faith were already dead. They were dead men walking. The death was just a matter of time. They weren't judged because they didn't look. They were already judged. They just didn't get saved because they didn't look. You see the difference? And Jesus says today, those who hear the story of grace in the form of Christ and choose to reject that story... They're not being judged. They're already under a death sentence. They're just not being saved. We don't have to be that person. We do not have to be the one who dies without hope. We do not have to be the one who's in the camp suffering under this sentence of death and refuse to look up at the salvation God offers. And I hope on this Easter Sunday we can be the one who heard Moses calling. And we can look up at the sky, so to speak, at the gift of grace on the cross. And we can make a commitment to believe. You know, in the desert, the Israelites could look around and see their brothers being saved and know that the promise was true. I invite you to look around in this room. There is none in here who were noble, none in here who were, who were privileged, to paraphrase Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're just ordinary people. The only difference between us and anyone else is that in faith we accepted something that the God of this world has made available to everyone else. And today we can hopefully... Add to that number. I pray that the Lord would be speaking to each heart in here with respect to this opportunity. If you have in your heart a belief that you are one of those people who needs the saving grace that God offers on the cross, that you would not leave the room without having an opportunity not only to confess that to your to your Lord in your heart, but also to raise that with somebody in the room so that they might confirm that change is with you in your heart. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, how much can we say concerning your grace? Father, how much can we measure what it must have taken for your son to die in our place? Father, the scriptures tell us that the judgment that was upon us was of our own making by the sin that is common to all men. And yet you love the world so much 
that you were not content to see that sin bring us all to destruction. Thank you, Father, so much that the Bible has been provided, that the Word of God has been made clear and truthful so that we would have a clear understanding of how that grace can be ours. For so many in here, Father, that has already happened. There are hearts here who have come to know you in many years past and have served you in every day since. And what a humbling and remarkable privilege that is. And perhaps, Father, for others either gathered with us this morning or others who may hear this at some later time, its truth is only now fully understood. And yet, Father, you have called them in this moment so that they might hear these words. So I pray, Father, that for any who have now for the first time understood their jeopardy and recognize the need for salvation as provided in Christ, that this would be their moment. And this would be the day appointed for salvation. And as you confirm it in their hearts and as they know it to be true, they would cry out to you in their heart and seek you. For you will be found by those who seek you. And may they express that publicly as you call us all to do so that we may be witnesses. And Father, as we go into this time now set aside for communion and for a chance to remember that death, I pray, Father, that these symbols that we take part in today would have even greater meaning. We thank you for the teaching, Father, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.